A warning, this episode discusses suicide and depression and may be upsetting to some people. I'm Sean Hogan and this is The Good Guys Podcast. In this episode, counsellor and psychotherapist Paul Wilson shares how stigma stood in the way of him and his father's relationship. Like there was this kind of straitjacket of masculinity that was effectively imprisoning both of us and I didn't know how to bridge it and neither did he. And his suicide would set the tone for Paul's own battle with depression. And I just felt kind of like separated from that, like behind a pane of glass. I couldn't feel anything. I just felt this rising sense of despair and a real panic. But finally opening up relieved him of a lifetime of pain. It was like, okay, I can actually feel this and it's not going to destroy me. And how that led him down a path to helping others. Hey guys, just a quick note from me. I'm going to put some numbers of helplines and websites in the show notes of this episode, so if these topics do raise anything for you that you want to talk to someone about, then you can get the help that you deserve. And now, let's get into it. Paul Wilson, thank you very much for returning again um, to talk to us. It was really great to talk about uh, your profession as a counsellor and psychotherapist in our in our first episode last week. But um, your your job as a, as a counsellor has a whole lot of meaning to yourself. It is is there's a whole backstory that I'm really stoked that you wish wish to share with us. Um, yeah, and, and it starts with, uh, like a lot of, of our stories, it starts with your, your childhood and actually your father's experience with, with mental health. Could you give us an idea of what that was like growing up? Well, yeah, my journey to becoming a counsellor and a therapist is very, very much tied up with what happened with me and my dad. Um, I mean, both of us ended up kind of grappling with depression. Um, and in some sense, like, you know, that's not an uncommon experience for a lot of men that intergenerational wounds between fathers and sons have been going on for a really long time. Like my father, obviously, I think he felt disconnected and emotionally not in touch with his father. And then that's a pattern that then repeats down through the generations. And that has some pretty profound impacts and it definitely did on me. Yeah. Yeah. So what, what, what was your father like growing up? Um, what was your relationship like with him? Well, I mean, my father, I mean, he was a kind and gentle man, but he was not someone who could talk about his feelings. And he wasn't kind of particularly physically affectionate either. Now, like looking up to him as a boy, I mean, he seemed like a god, like, you know, he climbed mountains, he was a mountaineer, he taught himself to play the guitar, he loved music, he read me The Hobbit, like these are all kind of various positive experiences I had of him. But he wasn't someone who could talk about feelings. And he definitely couldn't talk about his own feelings. And he would just be very strong and silent, um, like a lot of men in his generation. And that left me kind of growing up as a kid, feeling like in some sense, he was disappointed with me. Like in the silence, I made it about, well, I'm this kind of, you know, nerdy, geeky kid who's interested in dinosaurs and UFOs and all kind of stuff like that. And he goes and climbs mountains. Um, but I mean, some of that stuff also came from him, like his love of science fiction. But there was a sense in which I felt like I didn't measure up because he didn't know how to tell me that actually I, I was okay in his eyes because he just didn't talk about those things. He didn't know how. Did you feel that as a kid? Did you feel 
a lack of appreciation or uh, that that he wasn't proud of you? Did he show that in any particular way? He was just silent. And so I think I made of that silence the idea that he wasn't proud of me because I think growing up, we need to actually hear from our parents that, you know, that they love us. They need to show it to us, whether it can be like with physical affection or it can be verbally, because otherwise we're left to kind of doubt. Um, mm. And, you know, at school, you know, I got bullied and I was really ashamed of that. And it, because we didn't talk about things and I didn't want him to know, I never let him know that any of that was happening on because I was ashamed of it. And I thought, gee, this doesn't, this doesn't look good. I'm sure he would probably feel even less of me if he knew this was going on. So that silence breeds lots of things um, that I kind of filled up with. Uh, I think I just disappoint him. Um, but that's why he doesn't, you know, say he loves me it's why he doesn't like spend lots of time with me because i mean he was working you know he was being a provider he was doing all the things that he taught men should do and then his big passion was mountaineering so he'd go away on mountaineering trips with other men and he was just kind of absent physically and also just not emotionally present um and it was Did as a boy it was hard to know how to understand that and I, I i made sense of that the way i think many boys and girls do is that their fathers just aren't super into them and did you did you try at all to appease him in any way go away from what you really liked or or did as a kid to try and feel a bit more from him or try and draw out some sort of appreciation or or love from him um I did, but I think it was easier for my sister. Um, what my sister, she was younger than me, what she would do is because being a girl, she could just like climb into his lap and being the apple of his eye. So I saw her getting all of this physical love from my father. But as another boy, I just, you know, another male, I didn't feel it was kind of okay to do that. Like there was this kind of straitjacket of masculinity that was effectively imprisoning both of us. And I didn't know how to bridge it and neither did he. And so I was scared to try. Like I figure that I would try it and would just like, I almost didn't want to face the proof that he really didn't kind of um, think I was that great. Like um, better to just st stay back and not risk be that being confirmed. Um, I mean, looking back, I wish I had, but I was just a kid. Um, yeah, so I was making yeah. sense of it as, as children do. And as a kid, you, you, your mother and your father uh, eventually separated. What, yep. what could you see that coming? And as a as a young child, what's that? What's that like to suddenly have your your family, I guess, ripped apart? It was pretty devastating. Like I had no sense that that was coming. Like I was conscious that there were tensions between my parents, but they never argued. Um, I mean, that was one of kind of the issues is that my dad didn't really do conflict either. Um, he would just withdraw. And so I gather when there were issues between my parents, I mean, all couples have issues they struggle with, money and all kinds of things. My sense is he wouldn't argue with anything. He would just go away more um, and kind of, you know, be absent from the conflict. And obviously that took a toll. But when it, like, as far as I knew, it was just like one day, um, dad had moved out. Um, so I was pretty much, you know, shocked by that. Like he was just kind of gone. And my mother was explaining that, you know, from now on, we'd sort of see him, like, we'd get to stay with him every second weekend for a couple of days once he found a place. Um, but it all seemed pretty surprising to us, um, me and my sister. Yeah. And so I was pretty devastated. 
How old were you at that age point? I was 10. I was 10 10. when he first left, when he moved out. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So there must have been a feeling of, of, of loss of grief in a way that he, Mm. he had gone. Yeah. Do you think that contributed in a way to how you felt in terms of your disconnect from him as a son? Well, yeah, there was the sense that, you know, I was still there and my sister was still there that he had gone. If anything, it just kind of proved to me that um, I just wasn't lovable. He didn't really care that much about us for him to be able to leave like that. Um, that was the only way I could make sense of it. That okay, I, you know, he really wasn't that into me. Yeah. And how did your relationship um, progress from there and seeing him every couple of weekends? Did that, did that happen? Did we would go and sort of stay with him, um, you know, every fortnight for the weekend. And it would just be like, you know, I think Christy would kind of sleep in, you know, he had a small apartment, oh, a number of apartments, but he had this small apartment. And so Christy would kind of like sort of share one side of his bed. And I think I used to sleep on the couch. And it was all just really kind of awkward and surreal, um, not kind of crying quite how to be around him and then you know we would take us to friends or we'd go and see my grandparents and there was just this deep sense that he was even more distant now um, than he had been before like at least when we were around him at home and he might play the guitar or read the hobbit or do certain things like he at least seemed kind of happy in himself to a certain extent but now i had this growing sense of just how more and more distant he was becoming yeah but not knowing what to do about it and in hindsight you you know that to be depression essentially right yeah absolutely like now i understand that that was depression that um he was feeling ashamed and inadequate as a man his marriage was falling apart and he just felt deeply inadequate like i think for a lot of guys when your relationship's not going well it's a really personal thing to feel like you're failing to provide you're failing to be there for your partner and my mother was obviously angry at him you know for all of the issues that were there between them and he just felt terrible about it but he couldn't speak about it i mean i gather that my my parents they went and had couple counseling but i don't think it was really even easy for them to get anywhere because he didn't know how to talk about what he felt. I don't think he even knew what it was he really felt other than this deep sense of inadequacy that he didn't even want to name or go towards. And so it didn't really kind of pan out. They did try and reconcile, but it it didn't work. And his depression just continued to deepen. That kind of combination of shame and isolation um, Mm. is, is a deadly combination. And did you ever speak to your mum about this, Paul? Did she ever give you any insights into how he was feeling at the time? Or oh did well, she not? Um, I don't think she really knew what she's going was going on with him so much. Um, she was like, you know, I, I heard a lot about his faults from my mother, unfortunately, which is, you know, when people go through divorces and there is acrimony. Um, it's really unfortunate to kind of have one parent who speaks ill of the other. My dad never did that. He never spoke ill of my mother. Um, I mean, he didn't really speak much at all, but even then I think that wouldn't have been something he would have done. Um, unfortunately, my, my mother was um, far less circumspect about that. And that was really tough to hear um, all of her kind of disappointments with him, that somehow he was a bad man. And I was his son. So did that make me a, a bad son? Well, I already felt like a bad son that there was something kind of wrong with him. And maybe she was trying to tell me what was wrong with me too. Um, So it was a really, really difficult place to be in. 
And this ultimately all came to a very quite sad ending, didn't it, Paul? Could yeah. you could you run us through what happened? Well, when I was twelve, um, my father took me on this kind of last kind of tramping trip. Um, like I'd been on tramping trips with him before, but you know, occasionally. But this was one he took me on on Easter week Easter weekend in 1980, and I'd had this sense because um, he'd moved into this new, he'd given up the apartment, and he'd moved and he had just this one room in a, a place in Christchurch. This is all in Christchurch where he was living with like four or five other people who all belonged to TM, Transcendental Meditation, because he had got very involved in Transcendental Meditation. He was like searching for kind of answers or solutions kind of outside himself. He'd, I mean, my mother and me had also got involved in TM, or at least the early stages of that. And so he now lived in a house with lots of other people who did TM, because that was one of the things that they encouraged. And whilst we used to go and visit him, he was just like, I could sense that he was sinking and sinking and sinking and getting sadder and sadder. And I could feel it, but I didn't even know what words to give it. So we'd just go there and I would try and be cheerful. And, you know, we'd try and engage him in things or, you know, get him to make us a carrot cake, just anything to try and, I suppose, in some sense, breathe some life into him. So on some level, I knew something was really badly wrong. I just couldn't put words to it. And then he invited me on this tramping trip and he actually seemed kind of happier than I'd seen him in a really long time, or at least not this real kind of deathly sadness. He actually was, you know, we were going to go on this tramping trip and I went on that with a few of his friends. And after coming back from that trip, he came round to our house one night sort of uh, after work, after sort of the Easter break. And because apparently I'd, I'd left my school bag in his car when he brought us back from the trip and I had my school, my shoes and the school bag. And so he brought that back and kind of gave it to us. And that was the last time I saw him was him walking around the corner of the garage. And I was looking in this little school bag he'd given back to me. And then it was the asterisk book that used to be at his house, um, at his apartment, that I used to pretty much read every time we went there. But it was in the bag. And... I thought, that's really strange. Why is dad giving me that? Because that's what I read when I go to his place. Um, and that was the last time I ever saw him. Because he drove from there out to the Waimakariri River and basically gassed himself in the car. And yeah, and then, you know, the next, you know, a couple, he wasn't found for a couple of days. He was found by a couple of fishermen who then kind of called the police. And then, yeah, the police kind of turned up at our doorstep, um, two constables to tell us. Mm. Um, yeah, that's a, a a massive and terrible thing to happen to to both your father and for you as as a twelve year old. Mm. What were the the coming days, months like for you? Um, I just went numb. Um, in a sense, I just could not make sense of it at all. Like I just didn't feel anything. I mean, that's the sense of just kind of how devastating it was. The idea that. He was gone, like there was no getting him back. Um, this kind of brief flicker of him seeming more available on the tramping trip and then to have it kind of ripped away. Yeah. I mean, and that's not an uncommon thing. When people have been thinking about suicide for quite a long time and they finally make the decision, make the plan um, to do it, there often is this kind of uptick in mood because they finally feel like there's an escape from their suffering. Um, and it's actually, what I realize now, a really bad sign um, that they've actually made the decision that the suffering is going to end. And I think that that tramping trip was kind of his last gift to me. 
Um, I didn't know it at the time, but I think it was his chance to show a part of his life that he actually felt gave him some joy and to try and share that with me. Um, I just didn't know that was what was happening, but he did. Mm. Mm. You've obviously reflected on it a lot. Did you did you find any answers as to why he couldn't get out or, or he couldn't get himself out of that situation? You mentioned before he was going to... He was he was in search of something. He was yeah. just through meditation. He was trying to find some sort of purpose. Yeah. Were there any answers from people around him about what he was struggling with and and why he couldn't, why he had to take that measure? Well, I mean, it's hard to really know because he's not here to ask. But I guess that's mm. the issue: is that all of his friends um, and all the people around him who cared for him a great deal, they all knew that things were bad, that he was down, but none of them had any idea how bad it was because he didn't tell them. I think he felt ashamed of how bad he felt. I mean, I know he did. I mean, one of the things he left was his suicide note, um, which, you know, I got to read, um, probably too young. And that's a real kind of telling portrait of what was going through his mind because it was written on both sides of a packet for antidepressants, which had been prescribed by his psychiatrist and he wasn't taking them. And partly he wasn't taking them, I think, because maybe no one likes the idea of psychiatric medication. But the other issue was that TM discouraged it. They said, just meditate more. Um, and so whenever he tried to to say to them, like, I'm not feeling very good. It was just, just meditate more and you'll be fine. The problem is you're not meditating enough. But for someone who's going through clinical suicidal depression, rumination and more time spent alone not talking to people is the last thing you need. But he, he found it so difficult, obviously, to open up to anyone. He was so ashamed of how badly he felt. He felt bad about feeling bad because that's the spiral of shame that it just grows and deepens and deepens. And the more you feel it, the more feel you're bad and that you're toxic to be around. You're a burden to other people that, you know, this is kind of what goes through your mind. And to a certain extent, the only way out at the bottom is suicide. Because part of you wants the pain to end and part of you hates yourself. And an unholy alliance forms between those two parts because in a suicide, in a sense, there's a murderer and a victim. They're just the same person. How did reading that suicide note affect you? Did you, you say you were far too young, and I agree, far too young to read something like that? Well, it was really tough because I was reading it kind of as a 12-year-old, and there are bits of it that really kind of stuck in my memory, or as I was reading it, um, where, I mean, he talks about me and my sister. That's kind of actually who he wrote the suicide note to. And obviously it wasn't a planned thing. I mean, to write it on the torn off bits of the um, antidepressant medication packet, that kind of says that in his last moments, he was thinking about us and trying to go, well, I can't just go without telling them how I actually feel about them. So in some sense, like um, the note does say, you know, um, I love you and I know that you love me, um, but I've got nothing to give. Like, how can I give anything to you? I'm broken and defective and invalid. Um, you know, every day cold, never a day to look forward to, devoid of warmth. Like, his sense was that he was bad for us to stick around. And that he looked at me and sort of said, you know, good-natured, humorous old Paul, the way I should have been. Um, and that really, really hit me hard as a boy, thinking, oh, my God, I would try and cheer my dad up. 
And so I would be kind of good natured and humorous around him. But I got the sense that he just looked at that and thought, oh, that's how I should have been. Like looking at me made him feel worse. That was how I made sense of it as a kid. That I almost felt responsible in some sense for making it worse for him, which was not what he was trying to say in a sense. But that's what depressive thinking's like. This idea that he had nothing to offer and that me and my sister would be better off without him. Yeah, he'd convinced himself of that. Um, and that he'd been looking forward to ceasing to exist for a really long time. Like I understand from, I mean, I heard this from my mother, so I'm not sure if it's entirely true, that this wasn't his first attempt. He'd made other attempts, and that was why I think he'd ended up seeing a psychiatrist. But I think even back then, they just gave him medication, or that was all he was willing to accept. Um, there was no counseling and therapy, or at least not that he was able to access. There were no men's groups, or at least not that, I mean, this is 1980 in Christchurch. Maybe there were, but for whatever reason, opening up to other people about, you know, what was going on inside him, that was something he wasn't able to do until he knew he wouldn't be around to see how they felt about what he had said. Yeah. Do you think that that was the start of your grapple with, with depression? Absolutely. Like that sense of feeling inadequate had already grown in me. Like I already felt like um, my dad was disappointed with me. I couldn't do all the things he could do. He seemed amazing to me. And I was just this kind of nerdy kid. Um, yeah. So the idea that, you know, I was somehow something that kind of caused him pain was kind of what I took from that. So I felt this kind of big sense of guilt, I suppose, or that because he looked, in a sense, up at me, I needed to be really fantastic for that to be okay. Um, so I, children who go through the death of a parent, whether it's suicide or not, often have one of two ways of coping. And one is that it really destroys you, that you think you're so worthless, you're so terrible, and it's all so painful that it can really take you into some pretty dark places with addiction and all manner of like self-destructive impulses. The other way it can play out is the sense that you have to be kind of better than everything to kind of make up for all of the approval you couldn't get from your father. You try and get it from the world by being the shiniest, brightest, cleverest, whatever you can be. And if you're not always doing absolutely fantastic, then you're letting him down, you're letting the world down. And that was kind of the road I leaned into. And that leads to a lot of feeling of, well, I don't quite measure up and I'm a bit of an imposter and I'm always anxious all the time because I have to be perfect to make it kind of okay for him to have kind of compared himself to me and felt bad. Like it's almost a way of pulling him up um, by pushing myself even harder. And so that was a real treadmill. And of course, I couldn't tell anybody about it because the message I got from my dad was I was the man of the house now and I need to be strong and silent like he was. I mean, maybe that's a way of actually at least kind of becoming more like him as a way of being a man. That was what he showed me being a man was. And as you grew up, because we are talking about a 12 year old here that has received yeah. this amount of information and is feeling yep. this way, how did, how did that affect your, your development and who you became as a person as you entered your teens and, and 20s? Well, I really found it difficult to talk about the things I felt. Um, and to a certain extent, like that was just because of the depth of the trauma. I didn't, didn't really even have words to it. It was too enormous. 
And I got really scared of strong emotion, I think, in a sense, because my mother could kind of go um, to the heights of being really kind of full on. And that was kind of, you know, being too happy, too expressive. And that could be scary. And whereas my dad, or if you get too sad and too down, that's kind of deadly. So I kind of had the sense that strong emotion was just really, really dangerous. So all of the pain and grief inside me, I really just wanted to stay away from it. But of course, it wouldn't go away. And so it meant that I just didn't tell people what was going on for me. Everything looked fine on the surface, like I was kind of achieving and doing okay at school. And doing okay in the workplace but then hitting university and my second year at university where things started to get hard and I, I didn't get a couple of the grades I wanted and then boom it just really hit me hard like I was failing um, and I couldn't fail because I had to be so much better to be kind of okay to feel like I deserved love and also to kind of venerate my dad's memory and I wasn't doing a good enough job of it and that's when the depression really set in. And what what did that look like for you when you hit that that moment that you talk about? What did it start to look like? Well, I think everyone's experience of depression is actually unique. I mean, we talk about depression like it's a thing, whereas I think everyone's depression actually feels different because it's very much about all the things that are playing through your mind and your particular experience of it. So I don't want this to sound like I'm saying this is how depression is. This is how it was for me. And it was a really numb deeply painful but this kind of sense of being separate from the world where everyone else was kind of going on with their lives and doing their assignments and you know going to parties and I just felt kind of like separated from that like behind a pane of glass where they were all on the other side and I couldn't feel them I couldn't feel anything I just felt this rising sense of despair and a real panic um, that something was crumbling inside and I didn't know what to do with it but I could feel this pull for this is all just too hard. Why don't I give up now? Um, it was really, really scary. And so in some sense, I think I was starting to feel some of the ways my father felt. And in some sense, his example is what saved me. Mm. Um, tragically, I knew that if I just kept not talking to people and getting more and more isolated, I knew where that road led because I'd watched him go there. And part of me said, I've got to start talking to people. I've got to start finding the words for the things that go on inside me, even though they're so painful and difficult. And then through some university friends, they recommended I join Youthline. And so I did and started learning how to be a telephone counselor. And that's really the kind of the start of my journey that eventually ends up with me being where I am now. But this is in my 20s. So this is like over 30 years ago now. But that, that's quite interesting because you weren't accessing counselling yourself, were you? No. You, were, you were, as someone who was dealing with depression, yep. helping others. Absolutely. How did the stories that you were hearing from people and helping people deal with affect you? Did it help? Well... I mean, the particular kind of counselling you learned at Youthline, or at least, I mean, I imagine it's still similar. Like Youthline exists today, great place. Um, got a lot of good feeling about it. Um, that You're taught what's called like Rosierian or client-centred counselling, where really you're just listening to the person, empathising. You're not really necessarily getting into giving advice. You're helping them clarify the sort of situation you're in. And 
there is something soothing when you're someone who needs help to be in the role of helping others. It's a way of almost vicariously getting some healing yourself without having to get too close to your own pain. And that's definitely what I was doing. Um, in some sense, hearing that other people struggled and that some of the things they were talking about, being bullied, relationship difficulties, depression. Okay, I knew that I wasn't the only person who went through this. And, you know, doing the training, you, I did start to share a little bit about my history. And I started to talk about it, but I would get to a point and then I would stop. And that was often one of the pieces of feedback I would get is that I seemed to think everything through before I said it, that I was carefully managing how much I was revealing because I didn't really want to get too close to the rawness that lived inside me. Um, it was too frightening to do that, but I still gained a lot from the little I could do. And it got me, you know, I was starting the process, but for a really, really long time, I just you know, was in the role of being a counsellor and then being a group leader and training other counsellors. But I was still reluctant to take that step of putting myself in the position of reaching out and asking for help. Um, I still wanted to try and do it myself, like my dad. Yeah. And do you, do you credit that that block that you were putting up to something that you could probably see, I guess, was having a lot of benefit for people, but you were re reluctant to do yourself. I know it sounds crazy, doesn't it? Like every day I was being confronted with how much people benefited from really opening up about what was going on inside them. And yet I was still terrified of going there myself. Um, it was just such a daunting prospect. And partly it was, I was scared of what I'd find. I mean, in some sense, when you go through trauma like I did as a 12-year-old, um, by going numb, I didn't actually have to feel the pain. And I knew enough from seeing counselling and seeing therapy that I knew I would be having to face feeling that. And that was a really, really daunting prospect that once I opened up, I thought maybe I could never stop. Like maybe my life would fall apart. Um, maybe it was too much and I should just keep it in there. And part of me still really wanted to not have to face up to the fact that I needed help, um, that that straitjacket of masculinity, that this idea that we've got to fix it ourselves, that don't be vulnerable, that that message that you get growing up, boys don't cry, all that stuff. So I was still fighting through that. Um, and I would inch up close to it and say, oh, I really should go and, you know, maybe go and see a counsellor and actually do this. And then I would always find reasons to go, well, not this week. I kind of feel okay. Like, you know, it, has, it isn't as bad as when I was at university. I'll, I'll just, you know, I've done enough. I've done enough. I don't need to go any further. Um, yep, I'm, I'm, I'm fine. I'll just, you know, wear the mask and everything will be fine. And I don't need to face that. And so I get it. I get it when other people aren't ready. And I wasn't ready yet. Um, what was the thing then that the story has a happy ending? What was yes. the, the thing that, that triggered you to, to finally... Get, get the help that you needed? Well, in some sense, I'd very much stepped into being this um, kind of protector of women in a sense. And that like, for me, like being the man of the house for my mother and my sister, like I was the man of the house now and I was meant to look after them. I'd really taken on that that was the male provider role where you don't really focus on you. You just um, do what you need to do to support other people. And that's kind of a bit like the counseling role too. But then in lots of my relationships, my early relationships, I used to pick girlfriends who often had 
significant struggles with either of one or the other of their parents where I could be kind of the strong silent type and support them, which is a codependent kind of pattern. And of course, the problem with it is you're casting yourself as the rescuer and they don't always necessarily even appreciate this. Those relationships aren't always that kind of healthy. But, you know, I pretty much consistently kept doing that. And it was a big part of my first marriage, marrying kind of someone for the wrong reasons, in a sense, where I was kind of marrying someone to be of service in some sense, rather than actually because we were the right people. And I'd since moved to Canada um, because that was kind of where their academic career took them. And so I was kind of like, you know, working for myself in Canada. And now there's something about being all the way away from New Zealand, um, I guess I could start to go, okay, I can now in some sense think ill of my mother or struggle will be angry about my dad. And, you know, I'm far enough away that this is an okay thought to have in some sense. And so that's when it all really started to hit me again. Um, that it now felt just as desperate in some sense as it had when I was in my 20s. Now I was in my 30s. The marriage wasn't working and I finally get, okay, I have to talk to someone about this. I can't put it off any longer. And so that was when I finally made that appointment to see a male therapist. And it, it really did, didn't save my marriage, um, but it did save my life. Um, yep. Yeah. Yep. What was it about it that worked for you, Paul? Um, well, I guess I carried all this kind of shame and inadequacy, and I just really didn't feel like I was a man. I felt like I was a boy pretending to be a man. And I guess the real thing that my kind of counselor and therapist sort of said that what you're describing is how so many men feel and never talk about all of the things that you're ashamed about, all of these struggles, like what your dad did wasn't about you. Um, but of course, you know, that's the sense that a 12 year old makes of it. Um, yeah, so it was it was a lot of tears, a lot of grieving, and for a while there, you know, it felt pretty intense. Um, but as time went by, um, it was like, okay, I can actually feel this, and it's not going to destroy me, which was like quite a revelation. And it took you know a lot to be able to get close to that. Um, yeah, but it, you it spoke, was. Uh, you spoke about. Um the feeling when you were a lifeline counselor that you would, if you got close to it, mm. if you got to the point of being able to let yourself go and be open and vulnerable, that you might not stop. Was that a feeling for a while? Yeah. Or, yeah. Or... Yeah. And I mean, in a sense that was actually, you know, what my therapist was saying to me was, yeah, of course it feels like that for you. Like he was saying in the context of your history, like these are not irrational things to think in a sense. Like he was saying it makes sense to him and to, it began to make sense to me that my fear of strong emotion was like, it was perfectly understandable. And I mean, often it's like therapy is taking little risks and like testing the waters and testing the waters and going, actually, it's okay to feel this. You're not the first person. You can trust the process. Like he was able to like share little bits of himself that you know, his life that kind of went, okay, I, I understand where you are. This is how some of the things that happened for him in his life. And that was really kind of powerful for me to go, oh, okay. Like, um, like therapist self-disclosure is a really useful tool. Like for anyone who's listening, thinking, oh, if I go and talk to a therapist, is the therapist going to start talking about his own life journey like I'm talking now? And the answer is no, they won't. 
Um, <laughs> like in this sense, this is a podcast. I, I probably should have said that up front. It was did cross my mind. But there is still something powerful, especially I think for men, to have another man say, yeah, me too. Like what you're grappling with these struggles, not kind of knowing what your dad was. Some of this is intergenerational. Some of it's societal. It's not something that's broken about you. Um, and that was what allowed me to kind of go, okay, this all makes sense. I can start to trust this process that if I let go, you will catch me. Like I'm not just going to fall into an abyss. Yeah. And I didn't. Yeah. And coming through that was pretty life transforming. Yeah. And this is, this is what this is about essentially what having people like yourself on, on this podcast is, is about getting men to, find other men that they can relate to and know that what they are experiencing is completely common amongst a yes. lot of men. Yeah. yeah. And part of your recovery journey was joining men's groups. Could Absolutely. you could you tell us about well, those and yeah. and what they were what they were like? Yeah. Well, the first men's group I joined was actually at the recommendation of my therapist. It was a group that he co-led of other men who he had seen as clients, um, sort of for individual therapy. And also it was open to other men to join. And that was really, really eye-opening because there's something you get from group therapy that you don't quite get from individual therapy is that real powerful sense of yeah, me too. And that I actually belong to a whole group of men because I thought I was a pretend man. Like I was just a boy pretending and my, my therapist had been telling me, no, what you're going through, like, it's really, really common. And, you know, I believed him enough to kind of open up, but I still didn't believe it was really true that lots of other men struggled like I did. And that was when he sort of said after I'd been, you know, in therapy for long enough that I had an ability to know what I was feeling and I could talk about it and I could cry about it and I could feel all the things I needed to feel. He said, okay. I think it would be really good for you to join a men's group because this this idea you have that it's still just you. I mean, he knew that there's nothing like group therapy for actually having that disconfirmed. And it was really, really eye-opening to go along to a men's group and hear other men's stories and go, wow, I identify with so many of these. And you're just as kind of confused and struggled with it as I did. Like, maybe this is actually all okay. And that's what really brought home to me is that this is what my dad wasn't able to access either because he didn't have the language to be able to do it or because it just didn't exist and so that's really sort of stayed with me that you know i sometimes think if therapy and men's groups and things like we're doing right now had existed when my dad was going through what he was going through maybe he'd still be here and I've definitely had experiences of being in men's groups with other men who were saying the same sorts of things as my dad did. This idea that it would be better off for his children if he just wasn't around. And for me, that, well, that we'd forget him, that we'd get over it, that he was a bad thing for them. And to be able to sort of say, like, you know, you know, my father committed suicide, you know, 30 years ago, and I've never forgotten him. And never, you know, never a day goes by that I, I don't wish he was here. And in some sense, like, I think that was really kind of painful for them to hear, but I did really want to disconfirm this idea that, you know, that you don't matter as, as painful a place as you're in, um, you can come back from this and you will feel better for it. And so will your children. Mm. Mm. And so how did the, the progress that you were making in counseling and in these men's group then translate to your life and, and your recovery? 
Um, well, I mean, the first men's groups I was seeing when I was in Canada, and then when I came back to New Zealand after kind of the marriage kind of finished, um, when I got back here, I joined up with the essentially men and also men's groups here. There was a group over on the North Shore, and that was definitely, you know, I was now in a new relationship, um, who I'm, you know, I'm now married to my wife. And I mean, a lot of the issues I had to grapple with, with how I was in relationships still needed to be worked through. And there's something that's really powerful about working that through with other men, other men who have the same sorts of relationship diggles and, and realize that they're making kind of the same sorts of mistakes because of the same sorts of societal programming and who can just kind of support you and not criticize you, but go, yeah, me too. I did that. And yeah, I'm not proud of it either. And it's yeah, like that was something that I was really, really committed to. And it definitely improved my life in ways that I'm so thankful for, that this was like a collection of like, you know, brothers and father figures who, you know, I could be alongside with. And then after many years, like I then moved into kind of helping facilitate those groups to keep them alive. Um, and so this was all me. You know, I was still working in IT and I still do. And it really wasn't until I hit my 40s and one of my best friends um, died of cancer at the age of 42 and I was just kind of really stunned by the sense of oh my god like you know life could be over tomorrow you just none of us knows what the future holds and I'd been talking with my wife about oh okay I've always wanted to not just be doing this as a volunteer and a thing I do every now and again like it matters more to me and it's meant more to me I really think I want to be a therapist, but it was always something I was thinking about doing one day. Um, kind of like I was thinking about doing therapy one day. Now I was thinking about being a therapist <laughs> one day. And I would keep talking about it and go, oh, but I mean, uh, the training takes three years and it's full time and uh, um, it would take so long. Oh, But then after you know, Max, my friend, died, it, it really kind of hit me that if, if I really wanted this and I did, what was I waiting for? Like, if not now, when? Yes, it's going to take, you know, six or seven years to do, and it did take me seven years. But if I don't start now, I will never get to the other side. Um, and so, you know, I kind of signed up and started training. And, you know, seven years later, um, 2018, I was finally a registered psychotherapist and, you know, able to kind of pay it forward to, the the men who helped me um, and has that journey to become a counselor and psychotherapist in a way helped you understand yourself more and what you what you were going through well absolutely i mean a big part of the training and the big part of the training for any kind of counselor or therapist is know yourself because you are the instrument like you are the instrument you're using the more you know about how you tick and how things impact you, the more you can then use that to tune into other people and understand how what they're going through might impact on them. Like that is the skill of empathy and really knowing like where your blind spots are or particular things that are unique to you, you know, strengths and weaknesses. Like that's a, a big part of the training is getting to that place and deepening it. 
And I mean, and a lot of the things I'm saying here about how I understand my dad and I think he was going through this and going through that, like I've been kind of sharing that as we kind of went along through the story. Like at the time, I didn't know any of that. Really, a lot of the understanding of, okay, this is how my story fits together, how it fits with his story, how it fits with my grandfather's story and my mother's story. A lot of that came from doing the training because one of the things you do at least in the particular training I did, is a thing called a genogram, where you go back through the generations and you start looking at the patterns and the relationships that people had, the struggles they had, and kind of going, oh my God, there's actually so much of this in both sides of my family, which I'd always known, like mental illnesses, although I don't quite like the term mental illness in some ways, mm. um, is such a common experience on both sides of my family. And I'd always felt kind of stigma and shame about that but I do get that this is intergenerational trauma. Um, I mean, I could kind of talk more about that, but we've been, you know, talking for a fairly long time already. And <laughs> I think we could, we could, we, we could, we could, leave we could that put bit. aside another podcast for that one. I reckon. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you you talk about knowing yourself now, and and you don't have to share everything. But who is Paul Wilson now? Then what what have you learnt about yourself, and that, and what makes you you? Um, well, I guess what makes me me now, um, gee, that's a really, really broad question, but just the importance of connection, because that was the thing that my father really didn't have. He wasn't connected to his own emotions, so he didn't really know what he was feeling. He couldn't put them into words and kind of understand what was going inside his own mind, and he couldn't share it in other, with other people. And that's really what the journey's been about for me is just learning about the healing power of relationship and the importance, particularly for men, of being able to be vulnerable and not thinking that vulnerability is weakness. Um, actually, it takes a lot of courage to actually be vulnerable for others. Like the, the word courage, like its original meaning um, in kind of Latin and French means cur, which is heart. Because the idea was the heart was the center of the emotions and the center of the mind. And speaking what was in your heart, what was really there, despite whatever the consequences might be of other people, that was what took courage, like taking emotional risks. That was the original term for the, the meaning of the word. And yet we've turned that into men with like bravado, where actually it's all about pretending that you're, you're, you're 10 foot tall and bulletproof. Um, and it was kind of taking on that kind of picture of masculinity, which so many men, well, definitely my dad did mm. in prior generations, that that's a real straitjacket. And so I hope, you know, um, my children know how I feel. Um, they've seen me happy they've seen me sad they know that all those things are part of being a man because they're part of being a human being and you know they are welcoming of that in their friends including my son um, to him it just sort of seems like crazy that men should be ashamed of how they feel um, and I look at that and go okay um, that's 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 so wonderful to hear because I think it is changing in the world for how men are we're starting to have conversations about what healthy masculinity actually looks like um, and it doesn't mean kind of like being women it means being authentic real emotionally available men to all of the people in our lives our partners our children our friends yeah so i guess i try and embody that and for people who have been through depression and from our understanding of it you know that it's something that doesn't completely go away forever and it's something that you need to continue to work on right how yeah. do you yeah. how do you relate to your depression at well, these days and and what what do you do especially in in these times that we're in 
uh, what do you do to keep yourself level and, and on top of your mental well-being? Um, keep sharing and feeling. I mean, that really is like connection is the antidote to depression. Um, connection, empathy, vulnerability, like that is the self. Um, and I mean, that's been kind of really kind of underscored for me. And in some sense, like depression's not so much a state as a thing you do, like you depress um, in that you have something that's going on inside you and you think no one else wants to know, no one else wants to hear. So I will be silent and try and squelch it down. But you don't get to choose to not feel one feeling. You pretty much have to turn off all your feelings until, you know, my father says in a suicide note, like my life is cold, devoid of warmth, because he was suppressing everything he felt that wasn't manly in his point of view. And he didn't even think anger was okay either. So it was really, really tough for him. Um, and the way I think about it now is that, Often with like all of the mental health struggles people have, whether it's anxiety or depression, we talk a lot about symptom reduction. Like that's often the goal. But, you know, speaking as a therapist, like I kind of often use those as a sign that something in your life isn't being attended to. Um, that my depression was partly about the fact that I wasn't getting the emotional care that I needed. Um, and I didn't think I was supposed to need it. I felt bad that I needed it. And so in one way, you could say like the depression is a problem and we need to get you know, rid of it. But in some sense, actually leaning into the depression and kind of facing why it was I felt that way was actually the way out, which is not by moving away from the depression in a sense, but actually moving towards it with a guide who can help you feel through that and figure out what does this depression mean for me? What is it trying to tell me about how I'm living my life? And often it's in ways that aren't serving you, yet you feel trapped having to do it the same way. So yeah, I, 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 it's a weird thing in some sense to kind of go that actually, like the depression eventually led me to where I am now. Um, so it's not like I would wish it on anyone because um, depression's a really painful experience. Um, but you know, any kind of struggle we have, going to a place of what is, rather than just wishing it away, what is it trying to communicate to me? What is it trying to tell me about my life that's not working? And so I guess whenever I feel down now, that's where my mind goes. Like if I'm feeling a bit down or a bit awkward, it's like, okay, what needs of mine are maybe not being met that I've been neglecting? I'm working too hard or I'm looking after other people and those are all good things, but maybe I'm neglecting me. Um, mm. Yeah. That's well, a that's really a, long answer. That's 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 fine. There's a, there's a lot of tangible stuff in there that that people can take from that. So thank you very much for taking the time to to come and come and speak to me and and to share your story that hopefully other people will relate to and 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 learn from and know that they are they are we are all just the same and we all we all struggle with similar things. So thank you very much for coming on today. You're most welcome. It's been a privilege. Hey, thanks for making it to the end and I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please remember to subscribe and share this podcast to your mates or across social media so we can get these conversations out there. Have a good one.